If you have the Bible with you in some form or another on your phone or tablet, if you don't, the Scripture is on the screen for us today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 in your Bibles, verses 1 and 2 are just kind of our table setting today as we reflect together for a few moments. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. And if you, again, if you don't have it, it's on the screen for us today. The writer of Hebrews writes these words in verses 1 and 2. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. The revelation He gave them was only a fragment at a time, building one truth upon another. And now, in these final days, He has spoken to us openly, fully, and completely through the language of the person of the one who is by his character and nature, that is his son, Jesus, the appointed heir of everything. For through him, God created the panorama of all things and all time. So we've been reflecting on how we as the people of God are to be the people of God in these days of pandemic. And we began by looking at the Older Testament. How do we read the Older Testament? How do we understand the Older Testament, the Psalms, the prophets? We most recently looked at the story of Job. What does that have to speak to us regarding these days that we are living in and who we are to be. And now we've come to the New Testament, and in particular, Jesus and the Gospels. Jesus lived the story of Job, in fact, as we reflected last week. Do you know, one of the great words of the New Testament is the word now. Now. That was then, this is now. But now, says St. Paul, moving from his analysis of the plight of the human condition to his exposition of God's divine solution in Romans chapter 3. Something new is happening. The time, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's as close as, as, as the, the hand on the end of your arm. It's now, said Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. And Jesus' hearers, conscious of living within the perplexing story of Israel's scriptures, picked up at least that something long-awaited was now arriving and drawing near in Jesus who was present and on the scene. Or at least that Jesus thought it was, and so he said so. Jesus, like the ancient prophets before him, qu quoted 
he quoted them, those prophets whom he quoted, he was announcing yes, a divine yes that people should repent, turn from their own ways of living and turn back to God and have faith in the good news. Well, of course, isn't that what prophets are supposed to do? Yes and no. Jesus could, on occasion, point to disasters that had happened and warn his hearers that unless they repented, they would be next. Luke 13, verses 1 to 9 is a case in point of that. Yet, that was very specific. Roman, the Roman governor, had sent in the troops and killed pilgrims in the temple. That was part of the historic landscape that, that Jesus' followers were very freshly familiar with in their minds. The Roman governor had sent in the troops, killed pilgrims in the temple, and then a nearby tower had collapsed and crushed 18 people to death. And so, of course, Jesus' disciples inquire, were they worse sinners than all the others in Jerusalem? No, says Jesus. Because remember, his disciples were of the mindset and of the worldview that when something bad like that happened, then there must be some reason, some, some sin or some evil or something that, that, that was in their lives or, or taking place, and that's why that has happened. And so they inquire of Jesus, were they worse sinners than all the others in Jerusalem? No, says Jesus. Unless you repent, you will all be destroyed in the same way. This was a particular moment, a now moment, the decisive moment, in fact, for the history of ancient Israel, of the Jewish people and the institutions of that time. The warnings were all about the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. Unless the people changed their ways radically, then Roman swords and falling stonework would finish most of them off. Jesus could read the signs of the times, even if most of his contemporaries could not. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 59, Jesus speaks of the temple being destroyed and how he could raise it up. And of course, we know and are familiar, at least perhaps, some of us in the room are acquainted with the parallel terms that Jesus was speaking in, not just the physical temple, but the temple of this body that was about to be destroyed, he said, in his death, and then raising it up in his resurrection. So far, so prophetic for Jesus. And of course, as Jesus was speaking in these parallel terms about the physical temple in Jerusalem 40 years later, Jesus was proved right with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Yet Jesus went further. When people asked him for a sign from heaven, he saw their request as a sign of unbelief. Show us a sign, Jesus. 
Because you see, it was understood that prophets must verify and confirm their status as an official prophet by showing some sort of divine sign, some supernatural sign that would verify this. So they said, show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus saw their request as a sign of unbelief. They wanted proof. They wanted things to be obvious. And he said the only sign he would give them was another prophetic sign, the sign of Jonah. Matthew 12 and verse 39. Now, we've been studying the story of Jonah in recent days, and we will resume. Some of you have been asking, when are we going to get back to Jonah again? And we, we are going to do that. We know that Jonah disappeared in the belly of a great fish. And then he came out alive three days later. That, said Jesus, was the sign that would tell his generation what was going on. The other signs that Jesus was, was doing were not negative ones, however. Jesus' signs were always all about new creation. Water into wine. Healings. Food for the hungry, feeding the 5,000. Sight for the blind, life for the dead. John gives us a, a, a neat catalog of all of these signs and miracles. The other Gospels also chip in with several more, including parties with all the wrong kind of people. Jesus hung out with the rabble-rousers indicating a future full of forgiveness. All of these things were forward-looking signs. Notice this. They were all forward-looking signs declaring the new thing that God was doing, that He was doing now. That is the kingdom of God. And that is certainly the picture we get from John 9. Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who has been blind from birth. Do you remember this? Some of you will. Some of you may not be familiar with it. But Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who has been blind from birth. And his disciples ask the standard question. Not that different, really, from the question many people are asking today about the coronavirus. Teacher, whose sin was it that caused this man to be born blind? What sin and evil has brought about this pandemic we are in? Did he sin, the disciples ask, or did his parents sin? Jesus' answer puts paid to an easygoing vending machine theology that they were operating from, one sin in, one punishment out. This whole retribution principle way of thinking that was so common in the ancient world. He didn't sin, replied Jesus, nor did his parents. Now listen to this. It happened, Jesus said, so that God's works could be seen in him. 
that God might be glorified. In other words, Jesus doesn't look back to a hypothetical cause that took place somewhere in history which would enable the onlookers to feel religiously smug that they had understood some inner cosmic moral retribution mechanism, some sin that God had had to punish. Instead, Jesus looks forward to see what God is going to do about it now. For He is the light of the world. So, He heals the man. That's what God was going to do about it. He heals the man. This is the now time. Not the time for speculating about previous sin. God is interested in the now time. God is present future. He's not stuck in the past. And so we see through all of this, Jesus' sayings, Jesus' words, Jesus' demonstration, Jesus' healings, all these signs, we see that Jesus Himself is the ultimate sign. The Gospels present Jesus as standing at a moment of great transition in Israel's history. He is summing up the whole ancient prophetic tradition and he's re-expressing its message in terms of the last great warning to Jerusalem and its inhabitants. His message called them to turn now and follow God's way of peace rather than their crazy flight into national rebellion against Rome. Wouldn't that be a powerful truth to follow today for us? The way of peace. Instead of lashing out against our governments, protests and demonstrations and all of these destructive ways of dealing, what if we followed the way of peace? If you don't, Jesus said, it will mean disaster. And this becomes perhaps most explicit in Luke chapter 19. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And Luke records for us that as Jesus was doing so, he was in tears. He says he looked, Luke records, Jesus looked over the city and he wept over it. Lamenting the destruction that will come on the city because the people had indeed refused his way of peace. At the same time, Jesus in his earthly life and ministry is pointing forwards to a new world. A world in which he himself will be the one true sign. Pointing like Jonah's symbolic death and resurrection to the worldwide call to turn to God in repentance. When Jesus does talk of wars, 
and famines. Matthew 24, he talks of wars and famines and earthquakes and the like. Notice this. When he talks about those things, he doesn't say what we so often presume and impose on the text. He doesn't say, so when these things happen, you must think carefully about what you and your society should be repenting of. Instead, he says this in verse 6 of Matthew 24. He says, when you see all these things taking place, make sure you don't get alarmed. This has got to happen, Jesus says. But it doesn't mean the end is coming yet. If people had paid attention to that, perhaps we would have less alarmist teaching about the end times. Whether of the Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth variety, or the left behind Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins kind, or the present new wave today. Conspiracy theories were thriving in the first century just as they are today. And Jesus shoves them all aside. He pushes them all aside. And instead, he says, stay calm. Trust me. I give you my peace. In particular, and this is where we come to the significance of today's song in the Lord's Prayer, in particular, it is remarkable how little this gets noticed, this particular detail. Jesus gave his followers a prayer, which more or less all Christian traditions use today and which anchors the key prophetic points in the now of the gospel. And we've studied it together. We've studied the Lord's Prayer here together in days gone by. In this Lord's Prayer, Jesus' followers pray. And they pray not just when a sudden global crisis occurs, but every day. Not simply when a horrible act or horrible events serve as a trigger. Forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses. They pray it every day. Beloved, being kingdom people, being the people of God in the pandemic, being the people of God and being penitence people comes with the turf. That's part of what following Jesus is all about. Praying those two elements of the prayer. The kingdom prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the forgiveness prayer. Forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses as we forgive those. Praying those two elements of the prayer might just alert us to the real anti-kingdom forces at work in our world. Our real trespasses 
against one another, in our political systems, against the planet, against the natural world, and particularly the animal kingdom in our farming and food chain systems, of which we should have repented long ago. So what's the point? Well, the point is this. If we as Jesus followers are waiting for special events to nudge us, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. What's going on in these days? God, show us a sign. If we're waiting for special events to nudge us into looking for Jesus' kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, or to tell us to repent when we were drifting into careless sin, then we've gone to sleep on the job. That's not to say, of course, that we never do go to sleep on the job or that God cannot and doesn't give us a kick in the pants or a prod from time to time to get us back on track. How many know that to be true? I do. I might be feeling all alone up here, but I do. But this, too, is taken care of in the Lord's Prayer. Yeah? We sang it. Lead us not into temptation. Don't lead us into the time of trial and testing, but deliver us from evil and the evil one. In a sense, learning to follow Jesus is simply learning to, in a non-perfunctory way, that is, in a way that's true and meaningful, in a way that doesn't just go through the motions and rattle off empty words, but we pray the Lord's Prayer. Beloved, if we really do that, we will be delivered from the false explanations that imagine that the kingdom will come with sudden signs, despite the fact that Jesus said it wouldn't, he said, don't get alarmed when you see all this happening. Stay calm. Trust in me. We'll be delivered from those kind of false explanations or that new tragic or catastrophic event after the time of Jesus will be a, a global call to repent despite the fact that Jesus saw his own death and resurrection as the once and for all, surpassing, infinitely superior sign and supreme summons. We say, give us a sign. What's the sign? What are the and Jesus says, I've given you the sign. I am the sign. The ultimate sign. And my death, my life, my death, my resurrection, my ascension, my now rule and reign at the right hand of the... I've I am the sign. And if we truly believed that and really meaningfully prayed the truth of that that is laced in the Lord's Prayer, we would be delivered from these kind of false explanations and ways of thinking and notions and ideas that Jesus himself said are not what you think they are. And we will then discover the truth that the letter to the Hebrews declares in the text at hand before us today. When it puts King Jesus 
as the last and the greatest of the prophets. Throughout our history, God has spoken to our ancestors by his prophets in many different ways. The revelation he gave them was only a fragment at a time, building one truth upon another. But to us living in these last days, are you hearing this? But to us living in these last days, God now speaks to us openly in the language, fully and completely in the language of his son, the appointed heir of everything. He is the ultimate sign. This provides for us a vital answer to the question which lies behind a lot of the speculation and the argument about how to apply the Bible to great and disturbing events of our own time, to pandemics such as this. You see, the New Testament insists that we put King Jesus always at the center of the picture as the ultimate sign, and then we work outwards from there. The moment we find ourselves looking around at the world around us and jumping to conclusions and buying into every conspiracy, even the Christian ones, jumping to conclusions about God and what He might or might not be doing, the moment we do that, without looking carefully at Jesus and keeping Him as our focal point, the moment we do that, we are in serious danger of forcing through an interpretation which might look attractive. It might even seem spiritual. It might even be impressive and awe-inspiring. It might even make the internet... but which is actually something that screens Jesus out of the picture altogether. And as the old song says, if He's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. So instead, what might trusting King Jesus in this way look like? What might this mean for us in practice? I'm glad you asked. Stay tuned. We're going to look at that.